Man, that's special, isn't it? Gotta love it. I'm so excited to see Titus grow up. Uh, man, that's special. Okay. To the Word. This is our last week in Matthew chapter 5. We were blessed uh, to hear <clears throat> from Pastor Andrew last week the middle three Beatitudes. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first three Beatitudes. Today, we're going to focus on the last two. So open with me to Titus, or not Titus. That's going to happen probably a lot this morning. <laughs> to Matthew chapter 5. And again, we're going to read all of the Beatitudes starting in verse 1. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1 down to verse 12. Again, this is Matthew chapter 5. Let's stand together for the word of the Lord, which says this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we are excited to come to your word now. To understand it. And by your grace to make it a part of our lives. We pray that you would hide it in our hearts. That we would call upon it in times of temptation and trial. And that we would rejoice over it together. Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so again, Andrew last week took us through Beatitudes 4, 5, and 6. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, and the pure in heart. And he showed how each one developed from the last. He mentioned an observable change even between the middle three and the first three. The first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek primarily deal with the proper attitude we're supposed to have toward sin and the right attitude we're supposed to have toward ourselves. We mourn our sin. We confess we're poor in spirit. And both of those things develop in us hearts of meekness. They give us a meek disposition toward others, a humble attitude. The second three Beatitudes seem to be more sanctification-based. They deal with what the Christian does next in light of their salvation. Christians are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They're merciful toward others. They're pure in heart. So you might put it this way. The first three deal with an inward change of the Lord. The second three deal with an internal sense of that change, action upon that change. And the last two 
deal with our attitude toward other people. These two Beatitudes deal with external evidence of change from the gospel. These are the norms of the kingdom, right? You remember that? The Beatitudes are the norms of the kingdom of heaven. And these two Beatitudes, these last two, deal with how we treat other people. Of course, that's kind of been built in all along, right? Each, each Beatitude has had a, a sense where you can interpret it with other people in mind. But now, these last two, that's their main sense. So, how about this seventh Beatitude? Let's dive a little deeper. Our first point today, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, just as a reminder, to be blessed means that Jesus is saying something like, I have gladdening good news for the peacemakers. I have gladdening good news. It's a proclamation and blessing from God. It's good news, right? An objective blessing from God that has internal emotional content for the person who is blessed. The proclamations make us happy. So, blessed are the peacemakers. That word peacemakers is unique in the New Testament, in the Greek. It only appears here, and it only occurs once. That's the most literal translation of the word, probably the best translation anyways. It's the slamming together of two Greek words, peace and to make. Peacemakers. Peacemakers is really nice. We can understand from the word itself what it means to be a peacemaker at the risk of sounding really obvious. Peacemakers are those who actively make peace. So Jesus is not saying blessed are those who are peaceful or blessed are those who have a peaceful disposition. He is blessing those who make peace. So I think there's two main questions before us that we need to understand. They are surprisingly complicated questions, and they are these. What is peace? How do you make it? What is peace? How do you make it? When war between two countries breaks out, we long for peace. When someone is drunk and violent in public, they might be arrested for disturbing the peace. We use peace as a greeting. We use peace as a goodbye. And when I have to make hard decisions and I'm filled with anxiety, I say I lack inner peace. We think of peace maybe as a state of harmony. We use it as a synonym for calmness. We say we want to live a peaceful life, and what we mean is we want to be left alone. In our society, peace is opposed to conflict. It's the opposite of war and fighting and arguments and division and disunity. But peace is also used as opposed to chaos. It's the opposite of violence and anxiety and turbulence and tumult. The scriptures speak of peace in a similar way, with one big exception. God is always involved. God is, in, is always involved in the conversation about peace. In the Pentateuch, the f- first five books of the Bible, 
Israel was given the sacrificial law system, the sacrificial law, so that they could maintain peace between the nation of Israel and God. That's really the ultimate purpose of the law. One of the sacrifices that the people would bring to the Lord as a burnt offering was the peace offering. And that was not the same thing as the sin offering or the offering given on the Day of Atonement. It was not for the forgiveness of sins. Instead, the peace offering was a celebration. It followed after the offering made for atonement. It came after the offering made for sin. So you could give a peace offering out of thankfulness to the Lord, or after a vow is fulfilled, or even as a simple act of worship. We don't usually think of sacrifices in that way. We usually associate them with atonement for sin. But that wasn't what the peace offering did. Peace offerings celebrated the harmony that already existed between God and his people. Nothing stood between God and his beloved. And that was worth worshiping God for in an offering. The sacrificial law was in place so that the people of God could be close to him. He made a way for Israel to not only atone for their sins, but to celebrate their relationship. That was the peace offering. But the people of Israel did a really poor job keeping the law. Peace was not maintained between God and his people because of the people. Because they didn't keep his statutes. And instead of peace in the land, which was a blessing of the covenant if they kept it, The people had strife. There was war, opposition, suffering, drought, death. And that happened almost immediately. Right now I'm going through the book of Judges as a devotional. Man, that book is messed up. Have you read that? The book of Judges traces this downward spiral that Israel takes. A slide that they head downward into sin. And in it we see that Israel did what was right in their own eyes. So then the people of God ask for a king, as if God himself wasn't their king. And in his grace, and despite his warning that the king would only drive their suffering further, God gave them one. Saul, the first king, was not a peaceful ruler. David, the second king, for all of his virtues, was a warlord. And Solomon, his son, for all his wisdom, couldn't reestablish the peace. And by the end of his kingship, the nation of Israel was divided in two. The opposite of peace. And then a cursory read-through of the prophets give the idea that the, the peace was never kept between God and his people. So what could restore the peace? The prophet Isaiah delivered good news for a restless and chaotic nation when he said these words in Isaiah 9. Listen to this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the section we know well. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah tells us there would be one who would come and break the rod of the, of the oppressor. And I loved this. Burn the boot of the soldier who tramples. He will be king. The government will be upon his shoulders. He is the prince of peace. And Isaiah will go on later in his prophecy, in his book, to talk about the prince of peace. And the length the prince of peace will go to in order to make peace between God and his people. He becomes the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is Jesus. He is the great peacemaker. The one who is telling his disciples, blessed are the peacemakers, is himself the greatest there is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 say this about Jesus. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The ultimate biblical picture of peace then is reconciliation to God in Christ. Peace can be boiled down to reconciliation. That is peace. That's the answer to our first question. What is peace? The biblical picture is that peace is reconciliation and harmony between God and his people through Jesus Christ. That's peace. But how do we make it? The definition, this this definition of peace is in clear distinction to our world's understanding of peace, which at best is some type of tepid harmony between warring people at all costs. Biblical peace is not simple pacification. It seems more and more we hear about governments and institutions telling the people that really whatever they want to hear in order to maintain peace and to pacify the crowds, or even better, what they should believe in order to maintain peace. And we can be tempted to do this in our own lives, to share false good news in order to keep the peace, to say peace, peace when there is none. But that is not biblical peace. Peace also is not domination of one people over another for the sake of a calm society. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard of the famous Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That enabled the apostles to go all throughout the Roman Empire on their roads to share the gospel. The peace of Rome. In the Roman Empire, it was safe to travel all over because the Romans beat everyone into submission. They dominated everyone they came across. That is a false kind of peace. It's a domineering peace, not a godly peace. John Stott whom I quoted a couple weeks ago, the famous evangelical pastor theologian, calls these kinds of peace cheap peace. 
He says, the German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the concept of cheap grace. There's such a thing as cheap peace also. To proclaim peace, peace, when there is no peace, is the work of the false prophet, not the Christian witness. His point is that peace is often painful. That's the biblical picture. Peace is maintained through sacrifice. Jesus only reconciles us to God through his death. Costly peace instead of cheap peace means that in order to be a peacemaker, we have to die to our flesh and take up our cross and follow Jesus. If an argument arises, the peacemaker will endure the pain of apologizing and taking his responsibility. If a glaring sin is noticed in another believer, and we know our obligation, the peacemaker will endure the pain of approaching that person in order to rebuke and establish them back in the faith. If a believer is called to share the gospel with an unbeliever, the peacemaker will endure the pain of evangelism. Now, pain in each of these situations is intentionally hyperbole. We're not feeling physical pain when we do any of these things. But they're hard things to do. The peacemaker will be willing to do them. Making peace involves pain and discomfort and awkwardness and pressure and humiliation. Making peace involves having the hard conversations when you don't want to. Taking responsibility even when you know the other person is in the majority wrong. And laying aside your pride to look like Jesus. The Apostle James has a lot to add to this conversation about peace and peacemaking. His book is riddled with what it means to be peaceful. He paints a picture of what it looks like to practice this in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. He says, Know this, my brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me say that again, that last bit. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is worth stewing in. We, I think, sometimes wish that that wasn't true. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In our interpersonal relationships, the one marked by peace will do these three things. They'll be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The peacemaker is not someone who is quick to anger. Their temper flares up really quickly. They're offended really easily. The peacemaker is not someone who is quick to speak and make sure they're heard. The peacemaker is not one that ignores what is being told to them. They're quick to hear. Peace is something that every Christian should seek in every aspect of their lives. Remember with me, these are the norms of the kingdom. Peace is included in a list of the fruit of the Spirit, which means every one of us 
who calls themselves a Christian and who has the Holy Spirit needs to be producing peace in their lives. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says of every believer, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Okay, so the attitude isn't, man, I'd really like peace. It's, how can I bring peace? How can we make peace in any given situation? The people of God should not be characterized by quarreling, anger, warmongering, or chaotic, a, a chaotic collection of peaceless individuals. That's not the church. We should be marked by peace in every way. Seeking peace in our relationships together, in marriages that we have in our church, in our society at large, in Lakeland, in our nation, and in our world. We should want peace more than anything. And we should be peacemakers who bring this about. Again, not a general type of peace that's just a tepid harmony, but a peace in Christ as reconciliation of his people to himself. That is our goal. And the blessing that follows those who who do this is this. Jesus says, They shall be called sons of God. Some translations say, They shall be called children of God. Maybe your Bible says that this morning. And that's true, but I don't think it really gets to what Jesus is saying in the deepest sense. So, for instance, if we called somebody a son of a dog... We wouldn't be insulting that person's parents, right? We wouldn't be calling their mom a dog. We would be saying that the person we're insulting is like a dog because they're behaving like a dog, right? In the same way, and Jesus did this on purpose, to say someone will be called a son of God means that they'll reflect God's character. So being a peacemaker is what God does. Those who are peacemakers do what he does. God will recognize them as his own, as a reflection of his character. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Second, blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for righteousness' sake. The truth is, There will always be those who refuse to live at peace with us. That's life. Persecution is the result of two different value systems clashing. One winning over the other. And the winning group suppressing the losing group. That's persecution. They can't coexist in the same place, so one crushes the other. It is a bad thing. But Jesus paradoxically, says that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed. Hmm. We fear persecution. But Jesus says in verse 12, to rejoice and be glad about it. So what do we do with that? Persecution seems to be a bad thing, but Jesus says, Rejoice when you're persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Well, let's back up and ask a different question first. Why would we, 
endure persecution in the first place. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted. And he doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted and are also Christians. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So that means that not all reasons you might receive persecution for are in view of Christ for a blessing. We don't receive blessing if we lose our job at work because we're a jerk and also happen to be a Christian. We don't receive blessing if we get into an argument on Facebook and someone calls us a mean name because we are nasty to them. We aren't blessed if we're persecuted for being objectionable or unkind. Or to say it another way, we don't receive blessing if we are out of step with the fruit of the Spirit. We're not blessed if we're promoting something other than righteousness. Last week, Andrew gave me homework. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. He said it was my job to bring out why we should hunger for that which will also bring us persecution. Righteousness. Did you notice that? The thing we should be hungry and thirsty for will bring us persecution? Look down at verse 11. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This expansion of the last beatitude, verses 11 through 12, here Jesus substitutes himself in the place that righteousness had in verse 10. Which is so enlightening for the understanding of the entirety of these Beatitudes to be almost incredible. To read the Beatitudes without verse 11 is to miss a lot. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Nothing less than to hunger and thirst for Jesus. What does it mean to be persecuted for righteousness' sake? Nothing less than to be persecuted because of our faith in Jesus. Okay, so if we're persecuted for promoting something other than Jesus and his righteousness, then we're we're not going to receive blessing. That doesn't qualify. Again, if, if we're obstinate on Facebook for a political cause and we receive pushback from family and friends because of that, we're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you share a meme on social media making fun of the opposition and you offend someone and they attack you, you're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. We need to recognize that. But the blessing is also not for those who are persecuted for mere moral conduct. True righteousness cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the blessing is not for those who are really super nice and someone's mean to them. The blessing is for those who are persecuted because of Jesus. It has to do with those who are attacked on their basis for their association with him and their desire to do what he wants them to do. 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, will be attacked and suffer for the righteousness that they crave. The kingdoms of this world are set against the kingdom of heaven. They are set against the norms of that kingdom. So persecution and suffering should be expected by those who pursue holiness and union with Christ above all else. Let me say that again. Persecution and suffering should be expected by those who pursue holiness and union with Christ above all else. Our behavior, if we are in Christ, who is our righteousness, our behavior will look different than the world. We won't engage in what the world engages in. We'll talk differently, spend our money differently. We'll have friends we wouldn't otherwise have. We'll prioritize what we do for a living, where we live, where we spend our time, what we consume, and who we associate with based on the righteous demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to live a different life. A life filled with righteousness, filled with Christ, who gets to tell us how to live. We're called to be holy as God is holy. And of course, that kind of radical living, which it is, will have sweeping consequences for us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord with me that we live in a place where physical persecution and death is unlikely for those who believe in Jesus. Praise the Lord. Amen? But we shouldn't be surprised if that ends. Because the scriptures tell us to. For those on the fence today. For those on the fence of following Jesus. I urge you to place your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of the only person that can reconcile you to God. Place your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ today. That's the first thing I call upon you to do. But I also call upon you to count the cost of following Jesus. The best possible life you could lead is one where you follow Jesus. So follow him. But persecution is in store for you. Know that ahead of time. When the rich young ruler approached Jesus and asked him how he could have eternal life, and he told him he kept all the law, he did not count the cost. Jesus told him to give up everything. He calls us to lose everything for what we would gain in him. And for those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, Jesus says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same blessing, if you'll remember, as the first beatitude. So it is the bookend, the end bracket around the whole. And it points back to the first beatitude. We're in a cycle now where we can read through these over and over again, insinuating that those who are persecuted will be made freshly poor in spirit. Verses 11 and 12, as as I've mentioned, expand the last beatitude. And here Jesus stops addressing the general norms of the kingdom and he turns his attention to the disciples. He talks directly to them. 
Blessed are you when others revile you. This will be their experience. Jesus wants them to know early on in his ministry that following him will end in persecution. Each apostle will face it. Physical persecution, verbal persecution, economic persecution, and even death. All kinds of evil will be uttered against them. So what should their response be? Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Their response to persecution was supposed to be rejoicing. Happiness, actual happiness, emotional happiness and joy, which is pretty revolutionary. In Acts chapter 5, the the apostles are arrested a second time for preaching the gospel in the temple. Many people were coming to faith in Jesus, and the leaders, the Sanhedrin, were starting to get scared. A lot of mighty works were being done. Those early chapters of the book of Acts are always encouraging, by the way. Go back and read those. But in Acts 5, the apostles are told to stop what they're doing. They, they respond with, we, we can't help but do what the Lord wants us to do. We're not going to listen to men. And so they're beaten. The Sanhedrin beats them up. We're not told any other detail beside that. And this was their first real taste of persecution. The first real taste the early church had besides the death of Christ was the apostles, all of them, it seems, in Acts 5, are beaten up. You remember their response? It wasn't confusion or sadness or self-pity. This is what Luke tells us they did in, in Acts 5. He says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Man, that's always, that always takes me back, takes me aback. It's astonishing, really. They don't limp out. The picture that's painted is of the apostles leaping for joy because they get to be like Jesus in their suffering, slapping each other on the back and encouraging one another for how they endured their beating for Jesus. They don't retaliate like an unbeliever. They don't sulk like a child. They don't lick their wounds like a dog. They don't simply grin and bear it like a stoic. And they don't, they don't pretend to enjoy it like a masochist. They endure it like Christ because they understand the blessing. This suffering isn't, suffering in itself isn't good. Persecution in, in itself isn't good or something we should want. The promise Jesus makes to them here in verse 12 is what's good. Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus equates the apostles right after that with the prophets, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The apostles would be in good company. And all of us here who endure persecution in the same way will be in good company in the persecution club. And by associating with the apostle, the apostles with the prophets, Jesus says that the apostles will be the bearers of truth and they will suffer for it. And the same is true for us. 
The enemy hates the truth. He hates it. We're in good company with the apostles and the prophets when we bear witness to the truth. Now, much can be said about heavenly rewards. Your reward is great in heaven, Jesus says. But I don't think it's worth spending a ton of time digging in right now. We can look at different parts of the scripture and see a bunch of different crowns and treasures and positions, and those are all offered up to those who endure as rewards. But the greatest possible reward you could ever ask for is Christ himself. The apostles understood that their reward in heaven would be great, not because of the treasure they would get or the size of the mansion they'd live in, but because they'd be near Christ. Heaven itself is our reward. Union and communion with God forever are infinite rewards far above all else. Do you believe that? Do you long for it? If it is God's plan for you, would you endure persecution for eternal communion with Jesus? Now, I think there may be a question here that needs to be answered. Maybe you've thought about it as we've gone along. If these are the norms of the kingdom of God, as Pastor Caleb has said meaning that every Christian will be marked by these qualities of being poor in spirit and mourning over sin and so on and so forth. Does that mean that every Christian ought to endure some type of persecution in order to be confident that they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Is persecution necessary to follow Jesus? This final beatitude is uh, perhaps the most searching. Here's a question I think you should ask yourself. Is my conformity to the righteousness of Christ, my commitment to Jesus such that the world is set against me? Here's another one. Do I desire to do what is right to such an extent that I should expect persecution at any time? I'm not going to answer those questions for you. You need to bring those questions to your heart. Examine your hearts. Test your heart now against those questions. And do not forget what we learn from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. So we've come to an end of our micro-series on the Beatitudes within our mini-series on the Sermon on the Mount, within our greater series on the Gospel of Matthew. These are the norms of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' kingdom manifesto. They should be understood all together and as a whole. They describe every citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so my last question for you today to test your heart against is this. Do these norms describe you? Is this true of you?
Have you been made poor in spirit by your sins? And have you confessed them to God? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Have you mourned over your sin, which separated you from God? Then you'll be comforted. Have you traded in your arrogance and pride for meekness, understanding who you actually are before the Lord? You'll inherit the earth. Have you truly been made hungry and thirsty for righteousness, hungry for Christ himself? You'll be satisfied. Have you been merciful to others? You'll receive mercy. Have you pursued purity of heart, which is undivided worship of God? Then you'll see him. Have you laid aside retribution, anger, quarrelsomeness, and taken up the task of making peace between you and others and between others and God? Then you will be called his son. And are you willing to endure persecution for the sake of righteousness and Christ? then to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. These are all questions we should ask ourselves. And, by the way, questions we should ask our body here, corporately. Are these true of us corporately? Do they describe us as a church? Are we as a church poor in spirit, eager to mourn over sin, meek in our attitude toward others, Do we hunger and thirst for righteousness here in the body? Are we merciful to one another and to the world in how we act? Are we fully devoted to God and pure in heart? Do we make peace with our ministries and society? Are we willing to be persecuted as a body if it comes to it? Questions to ask individually and corporately. They're the norms of the kingdom. And by God's grace alone, they will describe us. Amen? Let's pray. As we come to your table now, Lord, we desire you. You are wonderful. You are merciful toward us. You give us grace upon grace. Father, we want you. We're willing, Lord, to endure what you have for us. We are eager to make peace where we can. But above all, Lord, we worship you and thank you for making peace for us. We were unable to make peace to restore our relationship. But Jesus, you went to the cross in order to make peace, to reconcile us to you. We worship you and we thank you for that this morning. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.